Happy History Hump Day, all of you queer history lovers. I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook, and this is A History Most Queer. If this is your first time listening, well, welcome to the show. Here we take little dives into the great ocean of human history, all to uncover the events, people, myths, and monsters that have often been erased, forgotten, or suppressed. And all because these events, people, myths, and monsters were either a little or a lot queer. If you live in the United States, or happen to keep up with news in that country that is sandwiched between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, you may be familiar with how over the past few years there have been a few attempts to limit or outright ban transgender people from serving in the armed forces. Now, it was not all that long ago that the military had a policy of don't ask, don't tell when it comes to being queer in the service. When that policy was adopted during the administration of President Bill Clinton, it was a step toward progress in comparison to the policy that had been in place before, which was to actively seek out and discharge any soldier, sailor, airman, or marine that was not a cisgender, heterosexual person. Despite Don't Ask, Don't Tell being somewhat better, it was still a ridiculous notion. People who were willing to volunteer to risk life and limb to protect their country were forced to remain closeted if they wished to continue to devote their lives to the security of this nation. While that policy was thankfully dropped, a lot of the reasons for it being implemented in the first place are now being brought up again to do the same thing to service people who are trans. If you look back into the history of the nation, it was only about 70 years ago that the same arguments were finally dropped regarding the racial integration of the armed services. Unit cohesion, different medical requirements, and so on are constantly brought up to keep women, homosexuals, non-white, and now trans folks in their place, as it were. It is something that will always surprise me about those who are bigots that espouse these talking points. The United States has an all-volunteer military, So, by definition, if anyone is in the service, they are there because they actively wanted to do so. They chose to join up, to risk their lives if a war to occur. They, regardless of any of these factors, are willing to die to protect the nation and its people. For bigots, they can't tolerate this. Only a select group of people are good enough for them to send out to face enemy artillery. It is preposterous at best, but time and time again, a new group is attacked for daring to volunteer to serve the country. Each and every time, the same tired and well-trod set of excuses is brought up. In the end, it all comes down to a fear that those who are supposed to be the bravest will be scared of their comrades in arms. This is only after accusing whichever group of the decade it is to discriminate against is called a coward, and so on. You can't make up a clearer case of hypocrisy. The Trump administration famously did everything it could to ban trans people from serving, and now, 
people like the Republican Senator of Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, are again trying to strike out at those people who, unlike both Donald Trump and Tommy Tuberville, either did not or actively worked to not be in the armed services. Again, it's hypocrisy all the way down. So for this week's dive into LGBTQIA plus history, and more specifically trans history, as August is Trans History Month, I thought we might look back at some of the trans folks who did fight in the military. Specifically, I thought, I thought we might look at the last time this nation was as divided politically as it is today. And that will take us back to the United States' Civil War, which was from 1861 to 1865. Let's go back to that tumultuous time to see if having trans soldiers cause the Union or Confederate forces to dissolve into a collection of people that were too terrified about the genitals, race, or genders of their comrades. I'll give you a bit of a spoiler here, but one side in this conflict really did have more problems than the other regarding this sort of thing. I won't yet mention which side it was, but let's just say that one side was inclined to help free enslaved people who happened to be black, versus the other side that was fighting to keep these black people enslaved. That being said, when it came to queer people in their ranks, they were less concerned. Okay, so let us dive into the rivers of time to find out more about this period. When the United States was formed, it was done so with an inherent contradiction that was baked into the original recipe. Now, in the preamble to the Constitution, it does say that, quote, in order to form a more perfect union, end quote, this Constitution was established. In regards to how the system would function, it would be significantly more effective than the Articles of Confederacy that had been the first system of government that had been established after the Revolutionary War. While it was more perfect than the Articles, this new constitution had a few compromises that had to be made in order for the 13 states to be united together. With all of the talk about life, liberty, and so on, it was rather suspicious that the institution of slavery was taken into account and in many ways protected so that all of the states would get on board. Now, the founders, many of which owned human beings themselves, were not blind to the double standard that now existed. In fact, they were sure that this problem would continue to be one for some time, but that, in the end, future generations would figure it out, and the Union would become even more perfect. In the decades leading up to the Civil War, this double standard of having one category of human beings relegated to being pieces of property without liberties and self-determination, while others were free to exercise those very things, both privately and publicly, would continue to cause friction. As the country expanded westward, gobbling up territories that for some time had been under the dominion of peoples of countless other nations, the topic of slavery being expanded kept coming up. While various tribes of people, such as the Seminole, Cherokee, and Creek, among various others, were forcibly relocated from their ancestral lands to make room for the expansion of freedom, this expansion would also mean that bondage would likewise move further west. 
For each new state that was formed, there would be arguments to decide whether its new American residents would be allowed to own other human beings or not. In the end, while most of the people in the country were against the idea of slavery, and that is not even counting those who were themselves enslaved, the various compromises that had been made nearly a century before in the Constitutional Convention allowed for enslavers to have outsized power on the political stage. On the one hand, the southern states had a really practical reason for supporting slavery. Thousands of tons of cotton and other agricultural goods were produced each year. All of that bounty had to be collected and processed to get money into these states. It made economic sense to these slaveholders to keep having an enormous workforce that were unpaid and that could not leave. With no real industry to support the southern economies, as it had not been needed to have industry due to the cash cow that was slave-collected crops, it became a veritable causality loop. There was no economic diversity because the fortunes made off of the whipped backs of slaves was beyond staggering, so there was no reason to change things up. Not only was there the economic aspect of slavery, but there was the social component as well. The plantation system was based quite heavily on the system of landed aristocracy that had been in Britain. Getting rid of the institution of slavery would mean that these American lords and ladies would now find themselves merely citizens alongside other humans who had been regarded for centuries as being similar to livestock or furniture at best and at worst, as examples of tangible proof that the slave masters were in fact superior to someone. All those high-minded ideas about we the people were really just lofty words meant to wallpaper over American feudalism. Eventually, this desire to continue to keep a grip on this feudalism and hierarchical caste system would override any desire to preserve the United States. Various slaveholding states would break away, declaring themselves as a separate nation, devoted to upholding the supremacy of white men and the profits that they made off the backs of millions of fellow human beings. The newly elected president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, would not have the states fracture under his watch. These states that claimed to be the Confederate States of America were committing insurrection and treason, and for that, war would be the only way to regain the Union and live up to the hallowed words and concepts that had been enshrined in the Constitution. It should come as no surprise that queer people were, like their straight and cisgender neighbors, divided about the situation. I will take on those who sided with both the Union and Confederacy. After all, even queer people can be on the wrong side of history. I'm looking at you, Caitlyn Jenner. We cannot forget that fact. Thankfully, we have quite a few that were on the right side of history, those who held their fellow human beings in higher regard, even if they were not exactly perfect regarding that. So our first trans, or at least trans-ish person, that I think we should look at is Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. Now, I said that she's trans-ish because she's a bit of an interesting case. I have mentioned this in previous episodes, but it bears repeating. Concepts such as sexual orientation, gender identity, and so on are relatively 
new ways to understand the complexity of the human condition. So, some of these people would, if alive today, proudly refer to themselves as trans women or men, while others might instead say they were cisgender women who dressed as men to fight the enemy or something to that effect. This particular historical fi figure was assigned female at birth, and throughout her life referred to herself as a woman. It gets a little fuzzy sometimes trying to pin down the best way to describe someone from the past. Then again, I suppose a crystal clear definition is not exactly realistic even today. We're all a bit blurry after all, and that's just fine. It makes life more interesting. All right, back to Mary Walker. Now, what is interesting about this person is that she's the only woman to have received the Medal of Honor, and for that matter, is one of only four civilians to have received the nation's highest honor. It is truly an incredible story, so let's get into it. Mary was born in the state of New York in 1832, and her upbringing was rather unconventional for the time. Her parents had no gendered chores for their seven children. So, regardless of cooking, cleaning, and hard farm labor, and so on, these were all divided up between the household. She was also raised to be a free-thinking person who questioned religious thoughts with no regard to the denomination. These two important aspects of her life led her to feel a freedom that was almost impossible in that time. Any career field felt open to her, and so when she decided to study medicine, it never occurred to her that she could not do so. Lastly, her mother was not a big fan of corsets, <laughs> believing them to be unhealthy. Likewise, if doing work out in the fields, she and her sisters wore trousers just like their brothers would. Again, it seems pretty cut and dry now, but in the middle of the 19th century, such an upbringing would have raised almost every eyebrow east of the Mississippi. In 1855, she would become the only woman to graduate from Syracuse Medical College, and she did so with honors. Years of being encouraged to learn as much as her brothers had led her to take a great interest in books about anatomy and physiology, and it paid off as she was now one of a handful of women doctors in the United States. Later that year, she married a fellow medical student, Albert Miller. The marriage would begin in unorthodox fashion, as Mary would wear trousers to the wedding and refused to repeat the part of the marriage vows that said that she would obey her husband. The pair would divorce after a few years due to Albert having an affair. With that marriage over, she had nothing that would stop her from doing her life's work. When the Civil War broke out, Mary was one of the first surgeons to volunteer to work for the Army. The service thanked her, but in no uncertain terms told her to kick rocks. Despite having a private practice, it was felt by the Army brass that no dying soldier would trust his life to the hands of a woman doctor. Now, they did tell her that they would enlist her as a nurse. With that, she decided to help the army as a civilian rather than enlisting. Still, they relegated this brilliant surgeon to being a nurse. She would find herself at the first battle of Bull Run. Despite being forced to be a nurse, due to the heavy influx of wounded, she was able to be a surgeon, but the army would not pay her for her services. 
Like her male counterparts, she dressed in trousers, claiming that the bustles, corsets, and skirts were impractical to someone amputating limbs and digging shrapnel out of wounds. It was not only soldiers that would receive care from her, as many civilians would find themselves in the crosshairs between the opposing armies. On the 10th of April, 1864, Confederate troops captured her as she helped perform an amputation on a Confederate soldier and accused her of being a Union spy. Now, <clears throat> she had requested to work as a spy before, but the Union declined her offer. So in this case, Mary was innocent. A few months later, she was returned to the Union as part of a prisoner exchange. Her time in Confederate custody had her suffer injuries from muscular atrophy. I have no earthly idea how that could have happened. Was she kept locked up and tied to a bed? Either way, she would receive a pension from the United States, as well as the Medal of Honor for crossing enemy lines to treat enemy combatants, when her male counterparts were too scared of being captured and imprisoned by the enemy. The remainder of her life saw her time and again bucking against the system of misogyny. While she had received great honors from the government, that did not stop police from arresting her time and time again for cross-dressing. It was a charge that caused her to exclaim, I don't wear men's clothes, I wear my own clothes. She attempted to vote and was stopped. She advocated for more women to become surgeons as she had, and likewise tried her damnedest to get the cross-dressing laws changed so that other women could be free to perform any job that a man could. Attempts were made to register to vote, but Mary was turned away. She was often known to don a top hat, so this really put a bee under that great black stove pipe. The suffragette movement would now count her amongst its ranks, but she would be relegated to the margins of the movement. One reason being that the top hat and trousers that she was so famous for wearing. Anti-suffrage elements would often use thinly veiled accusations of lesbianism or accusations of women trying to become men as an attack against the idea that women should be able to vote. Secondly, the suffrage movement found itself at odds with her as she was not in favor of an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would lock in a woman's right to vote. For her part, she believed that women already had the right to vote, so the Congress just needed to ban laws that states had that prohibited it. She would die at the age of 86 in February of 1919. It was not long after the passing of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. So was she just a cross-dresser, or would she call herself a trans man? It is up in the air, and I'll leave you to make your own decision on that matter. Either way, whether Mary's pronouns are he, she, or they, the term badass belongs squarely in her autobiography. Now, this person is a bit controversial. I will use she and her pronouns for her, and I think you will understand why. Now, if there's anyone on this list that we might be able to safely say might not be trans at all, it is Loretta Janetta Velasquez. That being said, she did at the very least claim to have disguised herself as Harry T. Beaufort. Was it just a wild claim, though? 
For ease, I will call her Loretta. And uh, she was born on the 26th of June, 1842, in Havana, Cuba. I think it's worth pointing out that at this time, the concepts of borders as we have them now did not exactly exist. People came and went all the time. Then there was the issue to places being swapped back and forth between powers, depending on whether a war was lost or won. So anyway, let's get back to our second subject, Loretta. Her father was claimed to have owned lands in Mexico, and these lands were lost to him after the Mexican-American War of 1846-48. She claimed in an autobiography, The Woman in Battle, a narrative of the exploits, adventures, and travels of Madame Loretta Janetta Velasquez, otherwise known as Lieutenant Harry T. Beaufort, Confederate States Army, published in 1876, that he held resentment toward the United States ever after, and this would lead to conflict between father and child later. She claims to have eloped with an American soldier, John Williams, in 1856 at only 14 years old. She had been betrothed to another man, so this elopement, and with an American as well, caused tensions between her and her parents. The relationship would further deteriorate when she converted to Methodism while living in the United States. When the Civil War broke out, her husband, John, resigned from the United States Army and took up arms with the Confederacy. Her loyalty seemed to be with the South as well, as her own family had become quite wealthy with plantations in Cuba and Mexico. The lifestyle in the South was one that she was all too familiar and comfortable with. The couple had three children, but they would die. Another sad aspect of this period and those before. Child and maternal mortality were agonizingly common. With only her and her husband now under the roof, she had a great desire to join her husband to fight for the Confederacy. He humored her initially, thinking that a day with these army men would turn her away from any idea of wanting to participate in the bloodshed and drudgery of warfare. She obtained a uniform and took on the name Harry T. Beaufort and found that the name, uniform, and lifestyle were all to her liking, much to the chagrin of John. Without his support, she decided to pack up and move to Arkansas to fight against the Union forces there. John would die soon thereafter, so her secret was now safely with her and her alone. Like Dr. Mary Walker, Loretta was at the first battle of Bull Run. Her love of camping out with her fellow soldiers would soon leave her, and so she decided to remove her uniform and dress again in her skirts and petticoats. She moved to Washington, D.C. to spy on the Union, and in her autobiography she claims to have even met President Lincoln. She moved all over the South, sometimes appearing as a man, other times as a woman. She was even suspected of being a spy, which she had been, but this time the Confederacy was claiming that she spied for the Union when it was really the other way around. She was injured at Shiloh and decided that the trousers and cap of a Confederate soldier were not working out for her. She again donned women's clothing and spied up north for 
Confederacy. She claims to have married a Union soldier and that this man died, but there is evidence that this man, in fact, survived the war. After the war ended, she traveled the world, ending up married in Venezuela. This man, too, died. One wonders how all these husbands kept dying. Anyway, and then she moved back to the United States, where she gave birth to a son and claims to have met Brigham Young. All of these wild tales border on being missing chapters from the life of Forrest Gump. She even claimed that not all of her biography was accurate, saying that she needed to write and publish it to help pay for raising her son. Her brother would claim that a great deal of what she did in her life was fraudulent, and that seems to pan out if you consider all of the names she went by, from Loretta to Alice Williams and Lieutenant Bensford and Harry Beaufort. She died in 1923, or at least it appears that she did, as this is where the names Alice Williams and Bensford would come in. Apparently, though Lieutenant Bensford had been arrested in the past, but the soldier confessed to being an Alice Williams. It is unclear if all these names are attached to the same person. With the doubts about the validity of the autobiography and so on, it is difficult to accurately say one way or the other what it was that Loretta did or did not do. Still, it can be said that she had an interesting life, even if some of those details are not accurate. The parts of her life that can be verified show a person that was brave enough to travel the globe and that she did not fear the perils of the battlefield. Now, whether she was trans or just an occasional cross-dressing adventurer is something that we may never really know. Now, for our next trans soldier, I think we have a case that is far less ambiguous in regards to how he identified. The name Sarah Rosetta Wakeman is said to have been assigned to him at birth, but his grave marker has enlisted as Private Lyons Wakeman. What we know of him has been gathered from letters that his family had and finally discovered after a century. He was born on the 16th of January, 1843, in Bainbridge, New York. His family was quite poor, and by the age of 17, he was having to work as a domestic servant, and his education was rather basic. In 1862, he left to work as a boatman on a coal barge, taking on the appearance and name of a man. There was some family disagreement between Lyons and his parents regarding taking on a masculine identity. Despite that, he did continue to correspond with his family for the remainder of his life. After his first journey on that coal barge, he would find himself in the Union Infantry. Recruiters from the 153rd New York Infantry Regiment were there at the end of his journey, and they convinced him to enlist. His duties would begin with guarding a great deal of the nation's food in Washington, D.C. and Virginia. A soldier's life agreed with him, and despite long periods of boredom, the regimented life of the military made him happy. He would tell us in his letters to his family, which often included money, they would help with their expenses. He did sign his letters with the name he was given at birth, which may have been a concession to his family after the argument 
that had caused him to leave. Lyon's duties of guarding food would come to an end and see him in actual combat against the Confederacy. In February of 1864, he would find himself in Pleasant Hill, Louisiana, engaged in the Red River campaigns. He, along with his Union compatriots, would beat back the Confederate army on six occasions, but would finally be forced to retreat to Alexandria, Louisiana. The battle would be documented in his letters home. Our army made an advance up the river to Pleasant Hill, about 40 miles. There we had a fight. The first day of the fight, our army got whipped, and we had to retreat back about 10 miles. The next day, the fight was renewed, and the firing took place about 8 o'clock in the morning. There was a heavy cannoning all day, and a sharp firing of infantry. I was not in the first day's fight, but the next day I had to face the enemy bullets with my regiment. I was under fire about four hours, and laid on the field of battle all night. There was three wounded in my company and one killed. I feel thankful to God that he spared my life, and I pray to him that he will lead me safe through the field of battle, and that I may return safe home. He would continue describing the death he would witness on the battlefield, saying that they lay sometimes in heaps and in rows, with distorted features among mangled and dead horses, trampled in mud, and thrown in all conceivable sorts of places. You can distinctly hear, over the whole field, the hum and hissing of decomposition. While he survived the battle, his life would be lost shortly afterward. He would contract diarrhea from drinking water that had been contaminated, either by dead animals or the corpses of his fellow soldiers. There would be thousands of deaths during the Civil War caused by unhealthy drinking water. Like with other infections, it is truly horrible to contemplate just how many died as an after-effect of the flying artillery, rather than from actual bullets and bayonet strikes. He would find himself in a hospital in New Orleans, but would succumb to the diarrhea after almost a month. It was there that he was buried, and despite the staff at the hospital being able to discover that Lyons was born female, it was never documented, and he was buried with the name he had bravely fought and died with. The letters back home were kept in an attic for a century, only to be stumbled upon in 1976. They would be compiled and published by Lauren Burgess in 1994 under the title An Uncommon Soldier, The Civil War Letters of Sarah Rosetta Wakeman, alias Private Lyons Wakeman, 153rd Regiment, New York State Volunteers. Okay, I don't want to say that I saved the best for last exactly, but I saved the most documented of these brave men, as this man, Albert Cashier, would live quite a long life, having died at the age of 71. Now, he was not the oldest on this list, but he was the most seemingly adamant about his transition. For 53 years, he would consistently assert that he was a man and that his name was not Jeannie, as he had been named at birth, but rather Albert. 
Albert was an immigrant to the United States, having been born in Cloggerhead, Ireland. While he had been given the name of Jeannie Irene Hodgers, his family, especially his stepfather and an uncle, encouraged the child to wear men's clothing, especially as this would open up employment opportunities for him at a local shoe factory. Even quite young, he adopted the name of Albert Cashier, and that name would follow him as he immigrated from Ireland to the United States and throughout the remainder of his life. He would make it to America by stowing away on a ship. He found himself in Illinois when President Abraham Lincoln first put out a call for men to enlist to fight against the Confederacy. In July of 1862, Albert would answer that call, joining the 95th Illinois Infantry. Although he was smaller in stature, his desire to serve his newly adopted country was ferocious. Eventually, he and his company would find themselves under the command of General Ulysses S. Grant in the Army of the Tennessee. With Grant in command, he would be involved in dozens of battles, including the Siege of Vicksburg. Later, he would find himself in the Red River Campaign under Nathaniel Banks. This is the same Red River Campaign that Lyons Wakeman also served in. It is doubtful that the two met or were even in the same battle, but it is a fun bit of little historical trivia. Like many other soldiers, he stuck to himself rather than being a part of the crowd during the sh slow times between battles. Perhaps a bit of this can be attributed to a more introverted personality, but it was also a necessary way to keep his secret regarding his sex safe and to continue his service to the Union. With the war ending, Albert returned to Illinois where he would do jobs from being a farmhand to cleaning churches and even working for a local politician. For decades, he lived as Albert, dressing as Albert, and few ever learned the truth. A family that had befriended him had learned the truth after nursing him back to health after an illness. They never told anyone and kept Albert's secret. He would even vote in elections, which at that time was a right that was withheld from women in many parts of the country. His interest in politics would even become a part of his career later in life. While working for an Illinois state senator, he was accidentally hit by said senator's car, which resulted in a physician discovering his biological sex. Again, the doctor kept that bit of information close to his vest. Sadly, after this injury, Albert would be unable to work as he had before. He was already in his late 60s by this point, so he decided to move to a home for veteran soldiers and sailors. After a few years, though, his cognitive skills started to slip away due to dementia. He was moved to a hospital for the insane in 1914. It was discovered by the staff at the hospital that he was biologically female, so it was only in his final years that his truth was discovered and disclosed. This hospital would not support his decision to continue to live as a man. His clothing was taken from him, and he was forced to wear the clothing of a woman. The press found out about the scandal, and the story also triggered an investigation to see if his government pension that he had received for fighting in the Civil War was in fact acquired via fraud. 
It was quite a terrible situation after having served three years in the army to now be treated as some sideshow curiosity at best, and a criminal at worst. Former servicemen who had fought alongside him would testify that he was indeed the man that they had served with, and this was despite having learned that Albert had been assigned female at birth. The investigation was finally dropped, and he was able to receive his pension for the remainder of his days. The dementia would continue to ravage his health. Since he had not worn dresses for the majority of his life, he struggled with the clothing that the hospital staff put him in. One day, while trying to walk with all of those long skirts, he fell and broke his hip. This injury would be the one that he would never recover from. On the 10th of October, 1915, Private Albert Cashier died at the age of 71. He was buried with great care, clothed in his Union uniform and with full honors, including a flag draped across his coffin. Even his grave marker listed his name as Albert Cashier. Despite any attempts to strip him of his pension and personhood, in the end, the United States respected this man who immigrated to their nation and fought to preserve the Union and free the enslaved. He had lived as a man for over half a century. And so for that reason, I think it is safe to say he would identify today as a trans man. This man could have easily avoided military service by throwing on a skirt and petticoats, but instead would bravely march over 4,000 miles and fight in 40 battles across the Confederate States of America. For that matter, we can say the same thing about a lot of the other people in this week's episode. They never had to sign up, just like the people who are trans and serve in the armed forces now. They don't have to, and yet they do. That ends this little dip into the lives of four trans soldiers who were involved in the Civil War. There are some estimates that as many as 400 people who were born female fought as men during this deadly conflict. It may never truly be known how many of these people would have done so because despite their womanhood they believed fervently in the cause for which they fought, or how many would now be considered trans. There are a variety of reasons, even beyond these, that would cause these people to join the war. We should be respectful of their service and likewise not demonize people who now serve openly as trans, whatever branch or duty in the service that they choose. It is interesting that only a few decades ago, there was a consistent drumbeat where Americans were often shamed into telling every person that they saw wearing a uniform that they, quote, thanked them for their service. Now, many of those same voices, whose mouths seem to foam with nationalistic fervor, are endeavoring to do all in their power to weaken morale, destabilize unit cohesion, and all of the other things that first people of color, then gays, and now trans people are accused of doing. I suppose the real lesson is that those who are the loudest about their proudness and patriotism are, more often than not, just being performative. If any of you are a person of color, gay, or trans soldier or sailor who has had to face this vitriolic hatred and discrimination, 
I would personally like to tell you that I thank each and every one of you for your service to not only the country, but for being a shining example to others like yourselves who can see that their possibilities are not limited. If any of you dear listeners know someone who has served or is serving that has dealt with this sort of discrimination, thank them and maybe talk to them about their story. History is not just about the kings and great battles, but the stories of everyday people. Well, I think that closes out this episode. I hope all of you found it enlightening and heartening. Again, with all of the anti-trans rhetoric being shouted from the loudest and most ignorant, it is a good idea to look backward to see that many of these scapegoats that keep being attacked have been amazing and honorable people who have impacted the world in ways both large and small. Trans soldiers were not even new during the Civil War, much less in 2023. If you have any comments, questions, complaints, or suggestions, you can shoot off an email to historymostqueer at gmail.com. The other socially way to check in on this podcast is with our Insta at historymostqueer. There you will find old-timey photographs of these amazing soldiers and doctor. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast on whatever platform you listen. If you hated it, have a heart and give a good rating anyhow. Also, I would like to thank Pixabay for sound effects and background music. It is time to say goodbye, my lovely queer history fans. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I look forward to beaming my voice into your ears on the next History Hump Day. Woo! <laughs>